This week's episode is brought to you by Audible. Audible has over 150,000 titles to choose from, all compatible with iPhone, Android, Kindle, or your MP3 player of choice. For listeners of the show, Audible is offering a free 30-day trial membership, complete with credit for a free audiobook of your choice. You can cancel any time and keep the free book, or keep going with one of Audible's subscription options. Go to audibletrial.com japan to claim your offer. This week, I'm going to recommend Quidon by Lafcadio Hearn. We're going to be talking about this book a lot this week, and it is a classic as one of the first books in English to deal with Japanese culture. Specifically, it's got some great discussion of supernatural stories from Japan, and if you've never read it before, now's a really good chance. So, go to audibletrial.com slash japan to claim your offer. Hello, and welcome to the History of Japan podcast, episode 75, Quite On. When I was planning out this week's episode, I noticed that our release day would be All Saints Day 2014, the day after Halloween. So I figured we should do something appropriately spooky. Then I figured it would be a good chance to tell two stories I couldn't really think of a way to fit anywhere else, both of which would fit that kind of theme really well. So, this week's episode is going to have three parts. First, I'm going to tell you a story of an American who went to Japan and found himself, among other things, collecting Japanese stories of the supernatural to present them to Western audiences. Second, I'm going to talk about a specific type of yokai, or spirit, in Japanese folklore, the yukiona, or snow woman. Finally, I'm going to read the section from Kwaidan that describes the yukiona. So first who was this man who went to Japan and ended up writing about these things. His name was Lafcadio Hearn, a British national born in Greece in 1850. Hearn's parents had an unhappy marriage, and due to a series of unfortunate events, he ended up not living with them, instead moving in with his father's aunt in Ireland. He was educated there before being shipped off, since raising him was proving to be too expensive, to the United States with a one-way ticket. One way or another, he would have to make something of himself. He ended up in Cincinnati, working odd jobs and even living in a horse stable before catching the eye of a local printer who apprenticed him. Speaking of eyes, you'll notice that in any photo of him that you see, he doesn't look directly at the camera, and instead presents the right side of his face to the lens. That's because he injured his eye in a schoolyard accident as a child. The eye eventually became very weak and was discolored, apparently, when you looked at it, so he refused to let anyone photograph it, and was apparently self-conscious about it for the rest of his life. Having worked in the printing business, Hearn eventually became a journalist. He did a brief stint working in Cincinnati before moving down to New Orleans in 1877. He worked there for ten years, and his writings about the city were very well received. Supposedly, he left because he'd become disenchanted with Cincinnati. According to one story, he proclaimed, It's time to leave Cincinnati when people begin calling it the Paris of America. 
Which doesn't really seem like anything anyone living there now would say. I kid listeners from Cincinnati. I kid because I love. Besides, it's more likely he moved away because his wife had just divorced him, and he wanted to get away before she took everything in the settlement. Anyway, it was in New Orleans that Hearn picked up a penchant for collecting stories from locals and publishing them. He did a few books on Creole sayings and folklore during this period. In 1888, he was contracted to do some writing in the French West Indies, and apparently spent some time living in Martinique, before receiving another contract to report in Japan in 1890. So in that year, he moved to Japan, started his contract, and was fired almost immediately for being very difficult to work with. However, he also discovered a love of Japanese culture, and arranged through a friend, Basil Hall Chamberlain, a professor at Tokyo Imperial University, and one of the first really great students of Japanese culture, to get a job teaching in Matsue, a small city in Shimane Prefecture. Shimane was and is Japan's most remote prefecture. Though it's on Honshu, the main island, even Okinawa and Hokkaido are more densely populated. In Shimane, Hearn also met his second wife, the daughter of a family of samurai named Koizumi Setsu. They got married after a few months and had four children. Hearn later took another job teaching in Kumamoto in Kyushu, before being invited by his old friend Basil Hall Chamberlain to teach English literature at Tokyo Imperial University in 1896. He said yes, and in the same year completed the process of becoming a Japanese citizen. His legal Japanese name was Koizumi Yakumo. He decided to take his wife's family name. Hearn would teach at Tokyo University for much of the rest of his life. He would accept another job at Waseda University in 1903, but died of heart failure in 1905 at the tender age of 55. What really made Hearn famous were the books he wrote about Japan during his life there. They were very romantic and sensationalized, but they provided a reading public in the United States with its first real glimpse of daily life in Japan, and while they were exoticized, Hearn certainly looked at Japan with fondness and affection. His two best-known works are Glimpses of Unfamiliar Japan, published in 1894, and Kwaidan, Stories of Strange Things, finished in 1904, only a year before his death. Kwaidan, by the way, is a romanization of the Japanese word kaidan, meaning literally strange stories. Nowadays, you don't see it used too much. Generally, the Japanese transliteration of the English word horror is preferred. And kaidan has something of an old-timey sound to it. Nowadays, the word is used most commonly to refer to supernatural or horror stories set prior to the Meiji Restoration. For example, Nakata Hideo, the director who did the original Ringu movie, has a film from 2007 called Kaidan. That's a sort of supernatural thriller set during the Edo period. Anyway. Hearn went around to local Japanese, collecting and editing their stories about the supernatural, translating them, and publishing them for an English audience. They're absolutely fascinating, and since they were published before 1923, they're in the public domain and thus free to read in the United States. So go read them. So today I'll be reading one tale from Kwaidan called Yukiona or the Snow Woman. We actually discussed the Yukiona very briefly in my super fast rundown of yokai, 
or spirits, in the Q&A show. The short version is that they're female spirits, variously either some kind of mystical creature or the souls of female travelers who freeze to death in snowstorms. I actually would be very curious to know if there's a tendency to associate snow spirits with women. Certainly in the West we have the interesting example of Hans Christian Andersen's story, The Snow Queen, about a woman very much associated with the power of the snowstorm. This, of course, in turn being the basis for the 2013 movie Frozen. It's an interesting parallel, to be sure, though to my knowledge no one ever asked the Yukiona if she wanted to build a snowman. Anyway, the legends of the Yukiona are, as one might expect, more popular on the Japan seaside of Honshu, the part that faces Siberia, and thus tends to get a ridiculous amount of snow. I looked into whether the Ainu in Hokkaido had similar legends, but most of the Japanese who live up there now are immigrants from the rest of Japan. As for the Ainu themselves, as far as I can find, there's not much on their folklore, though I plan to keep digging. Anyway, Yukionar sometimes portrayed sympathetically, as wandering spirits without rest, who, because they were never given a true burial, wander and haunt snowstorms. Sometimes they're described as more malicious, actively hunting travelers. Sometimes they decide what to do based on what the traveler does. In some stories, they ask for help, either by asking the traveler to look after a child, or asking for shelter, or something like that. And if they're refused, the traveler is sucked into the snow, never to be seen again. Hearn's version, as we'll see, goes more for the sympathetic angle than the latter, more malicious one. As far as I know, the first ever description of a Yukiona came from the 1400s, when a traveling Buddhist monk named Sogi described meeting one in Echigo, modern Niigata prefecture, in the heart of Japan's snowiest region. In that tale, the Yukiona was described as a normal-looking woman but for her snow-white hair. Later depictions, including the one here, removed that element and gave her more traditional black hair instead. Some versions also give the Yukiona the characteristics of a ghost, in particular leaving no footprints and having no legs. This is likely some form of what you could call trait bleed-over, from the traits of a yurei, or a ghost in the more traditional western sense. So that's the Yukiona. Now, turn out the lights, put yourself in a spooky frame of mind, and let's hear a story. In the village of Musashi province, there lived two woodcutters, Mosaku and Minokichi. At the time of which I am speaking, Mosaku was an old man, and Minokichi, his apprentice, was a lad of 18 years. Every day they went together to a forest, situated about five miles from their village. On the way to that forest, there is a wide river to cross, and there is a ferry boat. Several times a bridge was built where the ferry is, but the bridge was but the bridge was each time carried away by a flood. No common bridge can resist the current there when the river rises. Mosaku and Minokichi were on their way home one cold evening when a great snowstorm overtook them. They reached the ferry and found that the boatman had gone away, leaving his boat on the other side of the river. It was no day for swimming, and the woodcutters took shelter in the ferryman's hut thinking themselves lucky to find any shelter at all. There was no brazier in the hut, nor any kind of place in which to make a fire. It was only a small hut, 
with a single door but no window. Mosaku and Minokichi fastened the door and laid down to rest, with their straw raincoats over them. At first they did not feel very cold, and they thought that the storm would soon be over. The old man almost immediately fell asleep, but the boy, Minokichi, lay awake a long time, listening to the awful wind and the continual slashing of the snow against the door. The river was roaring and the hut swayed and creaked like a junk at sea. It was a terrible storm, and the air was every moment becoming colder, and Minokichi shivered under his raincoat. But at last, in spite of the cold, he too fell asleep. He was awakened by a showering of snow on his face. The door of the hut had been forced open, and by the snow light, he saw a woman in the room, a woman all in white. She was bending above Mosaku and blowing her breath upon him, and her breath was like a bright white smoke. Almost in the same moment, she turned to Minokichi and stooped over him. He tried to cry out, but found that he could not utter any sound. The woman bent down over him, lower and lower, until her face almost touched him, and he saw that she was very beautiful, though her eyes made him afraid. For a long time she continued to look at him. Then she smiled, and she whispered, I intended to treat you like any other man, but I cannot help feeling some pity for you, because you are so young. You are a pretty boy, Minokichi, and I will not hurt you now. But if you ever tell anybody, even your own mother, about what you have seen this night, I shall know it, and then I will kill you. Remember what I say. With these words, she turned from him and passed through the doorway. Then he found himself able to move, and he sprung up and looked out. But the woman was nowhere to be seen, and the snow was driving furiously into the hut. Minokichi closed the door and secured it by fixing several billets of wood against it. He wondered if the wind had blown it open. He thought that he might have only been dreaming, and might have mistaken the gleam of the snowlight in the doorway for the figure of a white woman. But he could not be sure. He called to Mosaku, and was frightened because the old man did not answer. He put out his hand in the dark and touched Mosaku's face, and found that it was ice. Mosaku was stark and dead. By dawn the storm was over, and when the ferryman returned to his station a little after sunrise, he found Minokichi lying senseless beside the frozen body of Mosaku. Minokichi was promptly cared for, and soon came to himself, but he remained a long time ill from the effects of the cold in that terrible night. He had been greatly frightened by the old man's death, but he said nothing about the vision of the woman in white. As soon as he got well again, he returned to his calling, going alone every morning to the forest and coming back at nightfall with his bundles of wood, which his mother helped him to sell. One evening in the winter of the following year, as he was on his way home, he overtook a girl who happened to be traveling on the same road. She was a tall, slim girl, very good-looking, and she answered Minokichi's greeting in a voice as pleasant to the ear as the voice of a songbird. Then he walked beside her and they began to talk. The girl said that her name was Oyuki, that she had lately lost both of her parents, and that she was going to Edo, where she happened to have some poor relations who might help her find a situation as a servant. Minokichi soon felt charmed by this strange girl, and the more that he looked at her, the handsomer she appeared to be. When he asked her whether she was yet betrothed, she answered laughingly that she was free, 
Then in her turn, she asked Minokichi whether he was married or pledged to marry. And he told her that, although he had only a widowed mother to support, the question of an honorable daughter-in-law had not yet been considered, as he was very young. After these confidences, they walked on for a long while without speaking, but as the proverb declares, When the will is there, the eyes can say as much as the mouth. By the time they had reached the village, they had become very much pleased with each other. And then Minokichi asked Oyuki to rest a while at his house. After some shy hesitation, she went there with him, and his mother made her welcome, and prepared a warm meal for her. Oyuki prepared so nicely that Minokichi's mother took a sudden fancy to her, and persuaded her to delay her journey to Edo. And the natural end of the matter was that Yuki never went to Edo at all. She remained in the house as an honorable daughter-in-law. Oyuki proved to be a very good daughter-in-law. When Minokichi's mother came to die, some five years later, her last words were of affection and praise for the wife of her son. And Oyuki bore Minokichi ten children, boys and girls, handsome children all of them, and very fair of skin. The country folk thought Oyuki a wonderful person, by nature different from themselves. Most of the peasant women age early, but Oyuki, even after having become the mother of ten children, looked as young and as fresh on the day when she had first come to the village. One night, after the children had gone to sleep, Oyuki was sewing by the light of a paper lamp, and Minokichi, watching her, said, To see you sewing there with the light on your face makes me think of a strange thing that happened when I was a lad of eighteen. I then saw someone as beautiful and white as you are now. Indeed, she was very like you. Without lifting her eyes from her work, Oyuki responded, Tell me about her. Where did you see her? Then Minokichi told her about the terrible night at the ferryman's hut, and about the white woman who had stooped above him, smiling and whispering, and about the silent death of old Mosaku. And he said, Asleep or awake, that was the only time I ever saw being as beautiful as you. Of course, she was not a human being, and I was very afraid of her. And I was afraid of her, very much afraid. But she was so white. Indeed, I have never been sure whether it was a dream that I saw or the woman of the snow. Oyuki flung down her sewing in a rose and bowed above Minokichi where he sat and shrieked into his face, It was I, 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 Yuki it was, and I told you then that I would kill you if you ever said one word about it. But for those children asleep there, I would kill you this very moment, and now you had better take very, very good care of them, for if they ever have a reason to complain of you, I will treat you as you deserve. Even as she screamed, her voice became thin like a crying of the wind, and then she melted into a bright white mist that spired to the roof beams and shuddered away through the smoke hole, and never was she seen again. And that, listeners, is the Yukiona. The moral of the story being, I suppose, that next time one of you makes a vow to a traveling spirit, be damn sure you keep it. Note also the attempt to humanize the Yukiona by making her a very sympathetic character. For example, she is such a filial daughter-in-law, such an excellent exemplar of Confucian morality, that her mother-in-law's last action in life is to praise not her son, but her. And of course, even as she threatens her husband with death, she's still concerned with the welfare, first and foremost, of her children.
it's an interesting example, I suppose, of how long before Twilight or anything like that, we were taking our monsters and making them sympathetic. And with that, everyone, happy Halloween. I'll see you next week. That's all for this week. Thank you very much for listening. Special thanks this week to Daniel Bensky for donating to support the show. To join him, to find out more about this week's episode, or any other episode, or to submit ideas for future episodes, check out the podcast webpage at www.historyofjapan.wordpress.com or our Facebook page at facebook.com slash historyofjapan. Thank you very much for listening, and I'll see you next week for a discussion of Japan's first great classic of poetry, the Manyoshu.